1: Well, welcome back to the Legend of Zelda lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me is my fellow host, Ariel. Hello. And we're gonna talk more Legend of Zelda. I'm excited! <laughs> but today's topic of choice is we're gonna start talking about some of the races in the next two episodes that populate our wonderful world of Hyrule and the surrounding dimensions and parallel universes and things like that, because we got to get these out of the way before we can get to the real history of what makes Legend of Zelda great. So this episode, we're going to focus on more of our land-based and our sea-based creatures. The Gerudo, the Gorons, the Zora, and the Hylians. woo <laughs> So let's get kicked off with the most prominent race in Hyrule and surrounding areas, the Hillians. So let's start our topic with the Hylians, where their most distinguishing feature is. And that is the fact that they look like humans with pointy ears. They're essentially our elves of the Legend of Zelda universe. <laughs> um, it doesn't get much elfier except for the Kokiri, which live in the forest. But... Their most distinguishing feature is, of course, their pointy ears and the fact that they consist of many different ethnicities, which I think is incredible.
0: Yeah, that is great. Did you know that everyone thought that Nintendo was trying to make them like look like elves and but that's really not it. There is an in-game explanation for it, for their ears and their ears are pointed because it said that it helps them hear the gods.
1: See, I knew that they weren't, I knew Nintendo wasn't shooting for them to be like elves, but that's what we all refer to them closely resembling. I did not know the fact that they could hear the gods because of this feature. And that's an incredible insight. Yeah, that is (laughs) pretty cool. It really truly does explain a lot about their features. So Some important things to note about them other than their features is they were one of the first races to establish themselves as a community or as a, you know, civilized peoples in Hyrule, which, again, not surprising since in the events of Skyward Sword, they descended from the sky. Prior to this, we discussed it in the first episode, you know, Hylia sent them into the sky to protect them and, you know, such things like this. But when they came back down, they were the first one of some of the first ones to establish an actual community, a kingdom, you know, a threshold on the land. Whereas most communities just lived in a state of confusion and which is all understandable because basically the demons were left run amok or, you know, evil was left to run amok in small dosage so that being said some of the more prominent known areas that they've established is obviously Skyloft and we know this because that's pretty much where they originated so it's important to note that while they were in Skyloft they pretty much remained ignorant to the existence of the land below them which is to say they thought pretty much the only thing was the sky them in the sky. Once they descended, this is where they really started to grab their foothold. They established Hyrule, they appointed Zelda and her descendants as the royal family, and they were left in charge to protect the Triforce, which we covered again, first episode. From there, it actually gets really interesting because when they established Hyrule, some of the Hillians were like, no, this isn't for us and they actually left to the Lost Woods. And we'll get more into what happened with them when we start talking about our forest dwellers. So we have basically two sets of Hillians that have separated and established two different domains. Another area where they established themselves was Termina. And in Termina, unlike their Hyrulean counterparts, they don't really, partake much in religion they're more so seated in the fact of science or you know factualities things they can tangibly see whereas our Helians from Hyrule they're very much invested in their goddesses and Hylia as a goddess and the protection of the Triforce and you know magic is extremely prominent here from there, we also have them establishing themselves in the Great Sea during the Flood, and then again, establishing themselves in New Hyrule. So, our Hylians have really come a long way, and consistently proven that their determination, they can constantly establish themselves as a, you know, civilized race, so to speak, quote-unquote, as they see themselves.
0: Well, on that note since we're ending here with the Hillians. I have something that I just thought was funny because I'm a massive foodie and Hillians are excellent cooks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we do we do get to bear witness to this in uh, Breath of the Wild because they're the ones who teach us most of our recipes.
0: Mm-hmm. And in Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, it like taught you to like keep that jar of milk.
1: Yes, yes, and, eh. <laughs> and that's been a consistent staple throughout the series. Actually, is bottling things up and trying to. Well, in in Skyward Sword, we had to bottle our pumpkin uh, pumpkin soup up, and we had to make sure that we had to get it to its destination within a certain time limit, or it was going to go cold.
0: We've yeah, had this and, well, in Wind Waker too, a Grammy makes the soup. That you get, like, it helps replenish your health and Mm -hmm. magic and all that stuff. Yeah. It's food. Food, yes. I'm a massive foodie.
1: (laughs) Well, before we call it quits with them, there's a couple things I want to establish with them. Just a few bit pieces. Number one, the major influence for their civilization, it's medieval. Essentially medieval Europe is the staple for their civilization. Um, we see this in their architecture. We see this in their, you know, demeanor. their even, even their clothing. Um, we also see this in their religious aspects because they hold the goddesses and, you know, Helia above all. So we see this directly reflected to them, and they're known to be one of the mightiest armies in Hyrule. That's not to say that they don't have their own challenges, which is where we jump off our Hillian train, and we jump into our Gerudo train.
0: Ooh, the Gerudo happened to be my favorite race. Oh! Do tell why. Because it's a band of women pirates who are really, really strong warriors. So you have this group of independent women. Mm -hmm. I just, I love it. I love them.
1: I will say they are a very, very, very close first for me. And we'll get into what my first favorite race is, and it's only because of one reason. And we'll, we'll get into it this episode, but <laughs> they are, they're definitely a tied for my first. So let's get into talking about them. So let's first talk about where they came from. So it's commonly talked about as, it's so commonly referred to in the fan base at this point this fan theory, that it's basically become canon without becoming canon, which is that the Gerudo have come from none other than Grus and Skyward Sword. And when you sit down and you hash out the details, it makes sense. So, in Skyward Sword, we have a character known as Grus. And huge spoiler for anybody who's playing through and doesn't want to listen, skip ahead. (laughs) But uh, Grus is our Our first run-in with, we'll say, a jerk in the series. Groose first kidnaps your Loftwing as Link. You have to go through, you have to save him, and he continues to bully you throughout the ceremony, and he's just a big jerk the whole time. But after the events of Skyward Sword begin to unfold, Groose follows us to the surface and then has his own little realization. And this is why he's one of my favorite characters in the series, because he has this growth, this evolution Very quickly So when he lands He's first terrified And then Impa talks to him And he realizes he needs to be of assistance He needs to help So he helps you fight back The imprisoned And he helps you throughout the end game With different little things here and there And he becomes almost a friend to you a really good friend but at the end game event he decides he wants to stay on the surface and he wants to journey off on his own almost like a self-discovery that being said it's safe to assume that he establishes himself in the desert areas of the land the reason that everybody firmly believes that he is the start of it all is because of his features. Now, Groose is one of the biggest Hillians or Skylothians throughout that entire game. He is the biggest. He's physically built. He's very large and he doesn't have the same pointy ears that the other uh, Skylothians have. His are more rounded. He also has red hair, I mean, burning red hair. And he has the facial structure, which is similar to that of the Gerudo tribe. And he has one key detail that we haven't seen in any other race, which is those beautifully burning yellow eyes. He's got them, just like the Gerudos. So these are the reasons people firmly believe that he is the start of it all. It would also explain the whole men being the rulers of the tribe. Because if Grus was the first one to establish his, shall we say, kingdom, it would be natural that if there was not another male born, that they would continue to almost wait for one. And the Gerudo name itself is very similar to Grus you know, it's not in the game. We see him basically proclaiming he should lead. He should, he should be a ruler of some sort. It's not too far off to say, especially since he named the land Groosland that somebody in his tribe was like, all right, it's kind of a silly name. We should do something a little bit better. How about Gerudo? And he was like, yeah, it's close enough. Let's do it. So these are all reasons why the fan theory basically works. And I firmly, wholeheartedly believe in it. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I have a fun little fact. Okay. <clears throat> the Germanic name element, "ger" means spear. Oh? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a little nod towards their use of spears. And,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: I kind of like that. Just thought I'd throw that <laughs> in there.
1: Yeah, that is a fun little fact. I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a fun little fact.
1: We see them use spears a lot throughout the series, but mostly in Termina, uh, they're when they have their pirate, you know, kind of stronghold. They most of them pretty much carry around these halberd kind of spear like objects. That's pretty. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> so now that we've talked about where they've come from, let's talk about their appearance. So. They're tall. They are of, you know, darker complexion. They're widely known as some of the most beautiful women in the lands. And they always have fiery red hair and those burning yellow eyes. And they are really, really strong. (laughs) They're coveted as some of the strongest fighters throughout Hyrule.
0: So, uh since I'm on an ear tangent.
1: <laughs> you I want to talk about ear the ears,
0: yes, because they vary between having round ears and pointed ears. hmm yeah. Like in Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, they have round ears. Yes. But in Breath of the Wild, they have pointed ears. Okay, yeah. So on that, Ganondorf... And his first appearance in Ocarina of Time has rounded ears, but later he develops more pointed ears. Mm. And it's heavily implied that it's because of him acquiring the Triforce of Power.
1: Yeah, he takes on a more bestial appearance when he uses the Triforce of Power. We see that in Twilight Princess when he starts growing the like the tusks and things.
0: Yeah like even like in Wind Waker and Twilight Princess like he has the pointed ears Mm -hmm. but another fun little interesting fact like you find out in Breath of the Wild that um, the Gerudo have two legends explaining the change in their ears from round to pointed so one of them is that their intermarriages with Hillian men have slowly pointed their ears Mm -hmm. because of course they have pointed ears Yep. But another funner one, the second one I think is a lot more fun, is that their shame over giving birth to Ganondorf, who became Calamity Ganon, opened them up to hearing the voice, voices of the goddesses.
1: See, I like that one better, but the more believable one is the Hillians.
0: Yeah, but that's why I said it's more fun. The second one's definitely more fun with their legends.
1: <clears throat> so now that we've talked about a little bit about how they look and their appearance, let's talk about a little bit where they reside. Where they've prominently resided is in the Gerudo Desert. The name fitting of the people that live there. This desert is known as some of the harshest lands. The winds are hot and dry and just terrible. The lands themselves refuse to grow much. It's, it's just barren. And that leads me into what happens to our beloved Gerudos. When, well, first we have to establish that every hundred years, a male Gerudo is born and made king. That's just the way it is. During the time frame of Ganondorf being born to the Gerudo clan and taking over. There were two important head figures that were just kind of puppeteering the clan from afar. And these two figures are none other than the twin witches, Komei and Katake, who are a huge pain in the butt. (laughs) Now it's important to note that they are about 400 years old in the Ocarina of Time series which is not normal for a Gerudo's lifespan. These witches have been extending their lifespan with the usage of magic. It doesn't go super in-depth into how that is or what they've done. It just says the use of magic. The reason that it's important to mention them right now is because this is where we truly get a taste of the Gerudo influence on Ganondorf, other than his birth into the Gerudo clan. They were his adoptive mothers, they taught him everything he knew about magic and all of these things. And as Ganondorf got older, he got tired of basically getting the wastes of Hyrule. He felt his people deserved to be on top like the, the Hillians, with the beautiful comforting winds and the grass greenery as far as the eye can see. They just he felt they deserved this, or at least a little piece. Which leads us to the First Hillian War, where the Gerudos attempted to basically take land, take the kingdom of Hyrule. Now, the Hillians were able to fight them back, and this led to the treaty between Ganondorf and the king, which, you know, we'll get into all of that later and how it was a lie and the manipulation and everything. But it's important to note that because of Ganondorf's manipulation, And his discovery on the child timeline through Link tattletaling and telling the royal family, hey, he's going to betray you. It leads to Ganondorf being captured for for an attempted coup and being sentenced to death and the Gerudo clan being excommunicated from Hyrule, which is where we see them in Termina. This is why we have the pirate island and the, the fortress, I should say, the pirate fortress in Termina. It's also worth noting that while they also live in Termina, the majority of them take up residence in the Desert of Doubt and the Four Swords Adventures. So during this time frame, they're excommunicated. And then shortly after Ganondorf is dealt with, they're invited back. And from there, we we see that they've established themselves in the deserts of Hyrule again, but this time they have more of a loyal pact with the royal family, which is reflected in the champion, Urbosa, calling Zelda her little bird, you know? And the, the discussions they have between Zelda and Urbosa, talking about how her mother, Zelda's mother, was a beloved companion and you know, ally, and we see that bond has been strengthened now in Breath of the Wild. So now that we've talked about kind of where they've come from and how they've gotten to where they are today, I think it's important to note a few more things and details about their skills. I mean, we know them as some of the strongest fighters, but what are they good at? Well, they're excellent swordsmen or swordswomen. in this case, they're crazy good with scimitars, spears, weapons of the, of any of that variety, but they're exceptional at horseback riding and archery. And that skill is held above all else with the Gerudo clans. In breath of the wild, we see that they've traded horseback riding for Sand seals. They have now uh, figured out how to sand surf essentially using a seal, which is even more incredible.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, <clears throat> their religious aspect of them is essentially they used to worship the desert colossus, which is an evil goddess. And in Breath of the Wild, it, you know, after everything happened, they kind of Rejected the Desert Colossus. And in Breath of the Wild, it's revealed that they no longer believe in the goddess Hylia. They've just abandoned all faith in goddess Hylia together. You know, some Gerudo back in the day did believe in goddess Hylia and everything else. Now it's just gone. What they have put their faith in now is the seven heroines. They see them as their divine protectors. And these seven heroines are essentially these warriors from time past that have protected their clans time and time and time and time again. And we'll go more in detail and who some of those are when we get to those sections of the games. Um, but it's important to note that now before we get there. And it's also important to note that the Gerudo don't like men. And It's been this way throughout the games, but in Breath of the Wild, it's reflected most accurately because after the betrayal of Ganondorf, they really don't want anything to do with men. I mean, they're not hostile to them. They just don't want them anywhere near them, unless it's for the purpose of finding a mate or a loved, a beloved, you know, spouse they don't want anything to do with the men. They even call them, go as far as to call them Vo.
0: I can relate. <laughs> but
1: all that being said, that's pretty much it for our Gerudo.
0: Such a shame, too, because they deserve so much more.
1: And well, you see, as they have established themselves in Breath of the Wild, they've come back quite a bit, I would say.
0: Well yeah, agreed. I just They're my favorite, so they deserve all the good stuff.
1: <laughs> so let's carry over from our desert lands to some hotter climates after the midbreak. Get.
0: Yeah. Get.
1: Well here we are in the middle of the show, taking ourselves a nice little break and getting into some some Legend of Zelda goodies. <laughs> So, Ariel, have you brought something really cool and really awesome for us this week? I did. Of course you did.
0: So, it's a Breath of the Wild collector's box. Ooh. This is on Culturefly. And it runs for $30 or $22.50 if you're a member. So, what it comes with is a Sheikah Slate Bento box.
1: Ooh. A
0: glass water bottle. Enamel pen set featuring each of the champions. Messenger bag. Journal embossed with the Hylian crest. Pen covered in glyphs of the divine beasts. And champion sticker. And it all looks really awesome. So, like, you want to get it for yourself or you know somebody that absolutely loves Breath of the Wild. Definitely worth getting.
1: I want to make note that I'm looking at it right now, and they've taken a lot of time to put a lot of detail on these things, especially the glass bottle, because the bottle looks like the bottles we see in the games with the little cork cap. And it's really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is pretty sweet. So
1: I've also brought some merch this week and I've brought some news from Nintendo. So let's go over the ner- Let's go over the merch first. So on Etsy, have you ever like wanted your own little dancing Navi around the room?
0: You know, the thought never crossed my mind. What's crossed my mind many
1: a days? <laughs> <laughs> I want my own Navi. So on Etsy, you can get your own Navi um, from The Build Plate. And what it is, it's a Navi Fairy Nightlight it only comes, unfortunately, it only comes in a single color, but the colors are vibrant, they're beautiful, and they're awesome. And it is a decorative ornament, and it is just, it's gorgeous. They sell for about 15, right around $15, and you can choose your color, and you can also choose the hanging holes. So you can choose whether you want a big hole, a small hole, you know, if you want a hole at all. You just want in a little desk lamp And It's really cool I probably am going to get, end up getting one And hanging in the studio
0: <laughs> Yeah they are really cute
1: So if you want your own Navi we'll have the links in the show notes For you and we'll probably Put it up on the twitter At the end of recording this episode So by the time you get this episode tomorrow You'll already have the link on the twitter <laughs> So What everybody's looking for, news from Nintendo. What's going on with Breath of the Wild 2? Unfortunately, with our Nintendo Direct, didn't get any sort of Legend of Zelda. None. You know, and it's... A lot of people are extremely disappointed. But, I'm here to tell you, don't be. With this being the 36th anniversary of the Legend of Zelda series, and the switch sales being at an all-time high and the you know the breath of the wild series doing as well as it has been for so long we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of both items the switch and the legend of zelda breath of the wild it's safe to say that they're probably not going to release such a big title in the nintendo direct i would almost safely assume that they're either gonna release it at E3 or they're gonna wait till the second Nintendo Direct and do its own individual Direct. Especially with us getting Majora's Mask released to the online N64 emulator that we have through the Nintendo shop, I'd say say that safely here soon, we're gonna hear something in the E3 about the Breath of the Wild 2. (laughs) Woop, woop. <laughs> so with that being said I, I think we should get back to our races
0: <laughs>
1: well here we are back from our mid break and we're going to go somewhere a little hotter now to talk about our particular race and if you're a Legend of Zelda fan you already know who I'm hinting at it's the Gorons the lovely, rock-eating rock people.
0: (laughs) Who are super nice and cute.
1: There's such a brotherly, sisterly race to Link. It's We're going to get into that. (laughs) So, the first thing we need to make note of is the Goron's appearance. I mean, they're commonly referred to as creatures with bodies like boulders. And that's because... When we first run into them, the first time we see them is in the Ocarina of Time series. And we see them rolling around in a boulder form.
0: Well, they are presumably silicon based due to their diets of rocks.
1: Oh, really now?
0: Just to kind of go along with that, that kind of leads into their immunity of drowning. Oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah because the silicate minerals and rocks are extremely common and contain oxygen. So, you know, they can they're they're fine.
1: So, they can't breathe underwater, but they don't really need to because their bodies basically contain oxygen. Yeah. That's an incredible insight.
0: Yeah, that's awesome because they can't swim or float.
1: We see this in Twilight Princess where We have to rescue one from this molten magma, like rock. And he just kind of floats or sinks, I should say, down to the floor (laughs) and is like, hey, yeah, thanks. This is great. Just sitting there talking like it's nothing. And yeah, (laughs) not drowning. He's just sinking. So with that being said, let's go into a little bit uh, about the Gorons. So they're a race of rock people like we've discussed um we find them in hyrule termina and pretty much almost everywhere since here's here's the cool part about them they've existed since ancient times where the goddess Hylia ruled and have always 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 had extremely close ties with the hyrulean royal family because of that they are literally survivors. They're capable of surviving and thriving in any environment. And during times of crisis, they have survived by migrating to different climates, different areas, and pretty much just forging and making it their own. So, these, though the Hillians pride themselves on being this established, you know, race of civilization and everything. The Gorons don't really need all that. They're just like, we just need to survive. So there are survivors. There are tanks. It is no, we need to make note here that they are mostly known for not having identifiable female members. So all Gorons basically look like males. And we haven't ever been able to identify a female out of the Goron you know, kind of species ever. So that being said, they mostly dwell in mountains. They thrive best in mountains. Their sizes are completely sporadic. They've been small. They've been, they've been big and they've been huge. Uh, the first one that comes to mind whenever you say huge is bigger who is just about roughly the same size as Death Mountain, which as fans of the series we know, Death Mountain is huge. And he's who we go to to get bigger on Sword in the Ocarina of Time. So, that being said, their legs are short, their arms are extremely long, they have these rock-like surfaces along their backs, and they have those big old beady cute eyes and the big old mouths. And their skin tone often reflects that of dirt or boulders.
0: Yeah, they're absolutely adorable.
1: They, they are pretty cute. The babies are even cuter. <laughs> um, their primary source of food is another thing that we need to note is the rock sirloin. And the rock sirloin is actually harvested from Death Mountain And because of I wanna make note of this because during Majora's Mask, when you have to save one of the Gorons from basically starvation and the freezing cold, he asks you to get a rock sirloin. When you bring it to him, he says, oh my gosh. You know, he says something along the lines of, oh my gosh, this is such a tasty treat that I haven't had in a long time and it came all the way from basically Death Mountain. So it's safe to assume that the Gorons often do dealings with the Gorons of Hyrule often do dealings with the Gorons of Termina and vice versa. We also get this from basically who they are. They're they're known majorly for being really diverse in the trade system throughout all the games. They're the people we know to be mostly the merchants. And we see this definitely in the Breath of the Wild series and the Wind Waker series when we have the traveling Gorons who try to sell us stuff all the time. So a couple notable feats about them. They have immense physical strength which they're incredibly proud of. And they often hold competitive tests with each other wrestling matches to see who's the strongest. And they cannot swim. Which we know from you talking earlier, they just sink straight to the bottom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're rocks. Um, They live in close-knit families, and like I said, they they typically dwell in caverns or below mountains. Um, But they're close-knit, and they really rely on themselves, which we see throughout the series where they refuse to ask for outside help. I mean, we see this in De- when their food supplies cut off at Death Mountain and we see this again in Twilight Princess when they refuse to ask for any help and they even almost go as far as to basically not so much shun Link, but just say, hey, do what you need to do and get out, man, because we don't we don't really want any problems here. It is until you prove your worth to them, which comes down to them honoring strength above all else. It isn't until you prove your worth that they allow you to aid them, or they even ask for your aid. They often refer to each other as brothers. They are known to be one of the more friendly races because of this, you know, it's, they try to love everybody, and this is why they're lovely little friends. But they are known to have a dark side, which takes place when the same place as the Gerudos, because they actually helped the Hyruleans to fend off the Gerudos in that war. They have extremely close knit ties with the Royal family. Like I said before, they will go up to bat with the Royal family at any moment's notice. And it's because of those ties with Hylia. So all that being said, A couple things I want to note about them and their culture. Gorons are famously known for their love of entertainment, singing, and dancing, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't really picture these giant behemoths doing this. You'd think, you know, wrestlers and... and No, they often actually find themselves dancing and singing and having a jolly good time. They prefer the theatrics more than they do the actual physical combat which is incredibly hilarious when you think about it Uh, another thing worth noting about them is it is customary for gorons to paint their bodies the patterns have changed throughout the different series of games but it often depicts some sort of traditional symbol or greater meaning um the most prominent symbol we see is the crest of the Gorons and we see this honestly throughout the series which actually reflect, reflects mostly the spirit stone that we're given in Ocarina of Time which is Din's you know Din's fire stone and that's probably because that's, that's what they were appointed by Din to watch over you know this is your responsibility and Like we know about Gorons, they're a very proud race. And they uphold honor above all else. So, there's some little tidbits on the Gorons.
0: I got a couple tidbits to throw in there too.
1: Oh, let's hear it.
0: Well, it's believed that they have low intelligence, but it's actually the opposite. They are a pretty intelligent race. Mm Mm-hmm. They just look like big, dumb oafs.
1: You know, we do get to see a lot of this in the... We see the first batch of this in the Ocarina of Time when the On Sword's made. And we see more of this in Twilight Princess because they're actually one of the first races to use metalwork and, you know, technology implemented in their security systems like their gates and their pulley systems and their mechanisms for, you know, mining we they're one of the first race to actually use this in a form of mechanical aspects.
0: Mhm. And then they reach maturity at 80 years old.
1: Now that one I did not know.
0: Yeah, they they have a lengthy lifespan.
1: This is true. They we <laughs> quite often we see some of our shall we say returning champs from other series blended in with the history of current series and it's commonly referred to they're commonly referred to like it was almost like yesterday that they were here so do we have a lifespan on them?
0: I don't have a definite lifespan but they have similar lifespans to Hillian's Gerudo and Rito. So, they, okay. they live a decent time. Okay.
1: Well, there's plenty to talk about with our Gorons, our Gerudo, and our Hylians. We're just hitting the important hearts now. And the details, the fine details will come much later in the series. And so with that, we're going to go ahead and shift from our hotter climates to our cooler ones. And I'm talking about the Zoro Domain. My favorite species.
0: Oh, and why is that?
1: Because they can swim up waterfalls.
0: <laughs> that's the reason? Yeah, because that's awesome. <laughs> well, you're right. It is pretty awesome.
1: So the Zora and the Legend of Zelda series are fish like people. Now, I'm going to read a short little blurb from the Zelda encyclopedia to describe them. So the Zora are a race of Hyruleans, uniquely adapted to thriving in the water. Their features resemble those of Hyruleans, but with characteristics not unlike some fish. Zora have large fins on their arms and flippers on their feet, enabling them to swim freely in the rivers and lakes they call home. So with that being said, it's important to note that Zora primarily make their habitats in fresh waters. But they have been known to dwell in more ocean spaces and, you know, places like that. They're not unable to dwell in those areas. It's just they like to stay in the central hub or close to it, which is called the Zora Domain. Now, the Zora Domain is where the royal Zora family resides. And... It's important to note, before we go too far into the royal family of the Zora, that all Zora uphold this honor and deep-seated, almost need to protect and defend their legacies. And it's also important to note that since ancient times, they have aligned themselves with the Hyrulean family they didn't start to deviate until after the Ocarina Time, which we'll get into. But anyway, the royal family of the Zora usually appoint the female, or the daughter, the princess, as the sage. Now, this is an important and crucial role because the sage's sole duty is to protect none other than the Zora Sapphire, or as we commonly refer to it as the spiritual stone of water. It is the sole purpose of the princess to be in charge of protecting this. And it has been until after the events of Ocarina of time. That's an incredible task to throw on such a young person because they're given this task at birth, basically. After they're raised to a point where of maturity, that's it. That's, this is your whole soul chop.
0: It's almost kind of sad.
1: It really is. I mean, but that's the way of the Zora family and the, and the clans. They, they uphold this system above all else. And that's the way they're raised into. They're a very noble race. And we see this throughout the series. Unless we're going through the child or the failure timeline where you die as the hero,
0: then they start
1: to become a little bit more monstrous.
0: <laughs> That's when they take on more fish like features. Yeah. Than the humanoid. So
1: let's get into that. So there is a timeline split, which is another reason why I love this species above all the other ones, because it's so diverse. There's a timeline split after the events of the Ocarina of Time. So we know we have three timeline splits. We have the heroes defeated, we have the child timeline, and we have the adult timeline. In the heroes defeated timeline, that is where they'll take on their more bestial appearances, and they basically their relationship with a Hyrulean family becomes soured. However, it's not. It, it's worth noting that at a certain point in the link between worlds. Queen Orin attempts to rule over the Zora, but this causes a split. Some follow her and others decide to take their own path. And these are the ones that become more primal and more aggressive. And at some point, the primal and aggressive ones, basically, they dominate. And we get the hostile versions in Adventure of Link. And these are the ones that will not hesitate to spit a fireball at you. (laughs) And they do take on that more bestial fish. And when I say bestial fish, I mean, they basically look like fish with legs and arms. And they've got these sharp, you know, vampiric, almost vampiric like teeth. And they're just very aggressive. So that is the hero is defeated timeline. The child timeline sees them in an era of prosperity where the Zora monarchy continues to reign supreme and it continues to grow. They do get a little hiccup here when their queen is unfortunately killed due to the invasion of Twilight. However, the prince, Rallus, does assume the throne at the end of all this. So they continue their prosperity. And the third split is the adult timeline where we end up seeing the world completely flooded. And because this flood isn't natural water, it makes the waters inhospitable to the Zoras to live in. It's important to note here that the Zoras can move back and forth on land. But like we said before, they typically like to stay... In the water or stay close to the water Here it's made impossible So after Generations they begin to Evolve into what we know now as the Rito which is the bird like People And we'll get into them Next episode when we start talking about More of our forest dwellers But It's incredible to think That we have three Splits of this one race And they've gone through the most dramatic of changes of all the races in Legend of Zelda history. We've got our aggressive, we've got our, you know, Royal Supreme, and then we have our evolved sky dwellers.
0: I can understand the change between becoming more aggressive and bestial. It just fascinates me that they went from fish people to bird people.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and in, in, in only in a century. It was a total of a century that this evolution took place.
0: Mm-hmm. Which yeah, we'll discuss that more
1: with next the next episode. Yeah. But, yeah. So now that we've talked about this timeline split, let's talk about some further characteristics. So let's focus on our child timeline so in the ocarina of time their appearance is more humanoid than it is fish um, the only real fish-like features they have other than their blue tinted skin and their scales is the fact that their head looks kind of like a dolphin and they have these very large fins on their arms these fins kind of go through changes in the twilight princess when they become instead of these thick masses, they become more like thin fish fins. And they become almost iridescent. And their physical forms become more varied. We have some taking on more, shall we say shark-like features, where others take on more elegant fish-like features like lionfish and things like these. And then we jump to our Breath of the Wild where there are different variations of fishes. Most of them shark-like, but we have stingrays. We have, you know, some that resemble more that of still somewhat dolphins, but most of them ag- take on more of an aggressive ocean dweller feature. Like we have our stingrays and our sharks. And though they're not extremely aggressive people, in the Breath of the Wild timeline, they basically become more reserved and internal. And in the beginning, we notice, you know, we know that they only let certain individuals from the Hyrulean, you know, lands in, and it's mostly messengers of the royal family or the royal family themselves. This continues to progress until we get to the Breath of the Wild timeline where they've even become more challenging of even that they'll still allow them in but not without substantial amounts of proof and we witness this when Link tries to come in and tries to aid them and they don't believe that he's the hero so that's a little bit about their personalities and their demeanors let's talk about what they thrive on
0: Um, I've got something to add to characteristics okay It's not necessarily a characteristic of their appearance, but of them as a whole. So, the Hyrule Zoras sleep in large communal pools. Okay. So, you know, school fish. (laughs) You know, that's what I think of. But the Z- the Zora of Labrina and Termina mm-hmm. have private dwellings.
1: Yeah, and we see that, uh, especially in the Majora's Mask series, where we go to the Zora Hall and we see that each one of them has their own individual rooms. And it's it's worth mentioning that in the Zora Hall those Zoras also take on different fish appearances. Like some of them even take on like a jellyfish like appearance. So, yeah, that is pretty cool to think about the fact that they're so different in different areas. hmm. All right, so let's get into some of the more unique characteristics and food sources. So we'll start with food sources first since it's the quickest and easiest to go over. The Zora primarily live off of fish. They are well known to be some of the best fishers in the entire Hyrulean kingdom. And I think it's incredible to note at this point that each race that we've discussed in this episode has been incredible at one thing or another. The Hyruleans are incredible at civilization, the Gorons are incredible craftsmen, the you know the Gerudo are incredible fighters, and now we have the Zora who are incredible fishers.
0: It seems to all come back around, Mm-hmm.
1: which comes back and around to all these races really do truly depend on each other,
0: which is you know a good thing to have, so you don't just kill off an entire race. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's pretty much their food source and what they're known for, but what they're truly known for is nowadays, especially, is their fierce, aggressive stances in the water. We briefly touched on it, that they're incredible swimmers, but I really want to go in depth into it, especially since they can swim up waterfalls. (laughs) And we're not talking just, here's a little waterfall. We're talking gigantic, nearly endless waterfalls. It's also important to note that this isn't something they're just born able to do. They train and practice these incredible swimming tactics from nearly birth. They are trained in the most grueling aspects of not only swimming, but water-based combat. They have trained so hard that they've become experts in this field.
0: That would be a really, really cool skill to acquire. Oh, it's
1: and it's incredibly versatile, truly, since there's large bodies. I shouldn't say bodies. There's large amounts of water channels throughout Hyrule. I mean, they're a force to be reckoned with because they can almost travel almost anywhere in Hyrule.
0: Waterfall, no problem. <laughs>
1: so other than this and their... Complete loyalty to nobility and their, you know, more regal upholding of themselves. The only other thing to make note of is that throughout the timeline up into a certain point, they've always had their own deities. Though they believed in Hylia and the goddesses and things like this, they also hold their own deities into a high regard as well. And this is reflected in Ocarina of Time first with Jabu Jabu. So Jabu Jabu is this large fish-like creature, which I said before, it's the sage's job to protect the Zora's sapphire, but it's also their job to take care of Jabu Jabu and all his needs.
0: That sounds intense.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not an easy task. Um, We've witnessed that in Ocarina of Time where Jabu Jabu pretty much eats all the time. (laughs) <laughs> uh, needs almost a nearly endless supply of fish so it's a lot of work for the sage unfortunately at some point Jabu Jabu is gone and we don't see any sort of return until Wind Waker where Jabun is descendant helps us through certain things and you know he's, he's a major character in that we'll get into that later with Wind Waker but that is that timeline in the timeline of Breath of the Wild however they they hold in regards the same concept as the almost the Gerudos where they worship their past warriors more so than not than anything and we witness this for some of the slates that we find throughout the Zora domain and some of the stories that are told and how they're told. It's not so much that they're worshipped, that they're held to a high honor. So that's a little bit about Zoras. It's a little bit that I have. I think you said you had another fact for us.
0: Well, I do. So Zora lay eggs, much mm-hmm. like, you know, fish do. Yep. But what I found interesting is they hatch one to three days after being laid.
1: So I'm so glad you said something about this because that's incredibly quick for those things to hatch.
0: It is very quick, but they have to be in the right temperature. They Mm -hmm. can't really alter too much and they have to be together.
1: Mm -hmm. Which we see in the uh, Majora's Mask, where we have to rescue all the eggs and put them together in climate-controlled water and climate controlled
0: water. Yeah, I just one to three days.
1: Yeah, that's great. Inc- especially since they have one of the longest timelines of a species. We see their age reflected in their monarch because in several games we have the same king or at least the mention of the same king. But we'll get into that stuff when we get deep in detail in those games. So I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here.
0: Oh, well, yeah. The Zora and the Sheikah have the longest lifespans, but the Sheikah kind of outlives them. But we'll get into that later, too.
1: I was say, we'll get into the Sheikah next episode. So I'm really excited to get into those. But that's all I have on the Zora. And this episode was quite a long one. It was. But I enjoyed it, and uh, I'm excited to do the next one too. <laughs> so, with all that being said, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you share this with a friend, uh, family members. You know, we hope you share it with anybody and everybody you can. And we just truly appreciate you listening. So, until next time, thank you, and we'll see you later. Bye. Thank you all for listening to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast tonight. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can chat with us all things Legend of Zelda on the Robots Radio Discord. Or you can get hold of us on our Twitter at LOZLorecast. Intro and outro are done by Betnal Landscape. Links are in the show notes below. Till next time, dear listener, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this.